So today we're continuing on in this sermon series called Open Invitation. It's a journey through the Gospel of Luke. That open invitation um, is a reminder that throughout this gospel, Jesus seems to be widening the invitation of those who uh, are invited to come and to follow after him. Today we're going to be talking about the greatness of God. As I already mentioned last week, we looked at Uh, In Luke chapter 9, the transfiguration told in Luke's gospel, that mountaintop experience where Jesus and three of his followers went up the mountain, and they had this incredible experience where Jesus was changed and he was joined by these two patriarchs of the faith. But then today what we see is immediately afterwards, they're going to come back down that mountain and they're going to have the needs of the world thrust back upon them. And the greatness of God is going to be vividly on display. So let's dig into it. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 43. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child, and a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly screams, it throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and it's destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Let's start today with this question. What is the ideal length of a vacation? How many days, by the way, it's days, if you're thinking like, I don't know, seven, eight months, something like that. Yeah, this is, let's say this is a vacation without your children. That's a different number than a vacation with your children, because the one with your children is way longer, is what I'm guessing, probably. So how long is the ideal length of a vacation? I know what you're thinking, Pete, you don't know but I do. I read some articles this week, and there are surveys and studies that go into this sort of thing. And yes, it's a little different for everybody. Not everybody is exactly the same, but there has been enough research done to know what the ideal length of a vacation actually is. And by this point, you've had enough time to develop your own mental answer and maybe nudge the person next to you and be like, okay, here's what I think. This is the number of days that makes the ideal vacation. And the answer is... Eight days. Eight days is the ideal length for a vacation. You might be wondering why. So here's the logic behind it as to why eight days is the ideal length. First of all, the first day of vacation is not vacation. It does not count. Here's what you're doing on the first day of your vacation. You are frantically packing and still feeling like you've forgotten something. You are hurriedly leaving because no one leaves for vacation on time, no matter how much they plan and think they are prepared. And lastly, you are stressfully traveling, whether by car or plane or something else. That is not vacation. 
at all. So that doesn't even count, the first day of being on vacation. Then it takes another day or so to, first of all, leave work behind, to like de-stress, to allow your body to get out of rhythm from what is normal for you in your day-to-day work life, and get settled into this place you're going to call home for the next several days, to get settled into your vacation spot. But after that, the positive benefits of your vacation, they ramp up really, really quickly. Those first few days after you're settled in are just dynamite, and you just keep going up and up and up. However, the surveys show that day eight is the peak. Day eight is when you feel the best about being on vacation. Then there's this plateau, and like day nine and ten, it starts to come down a little bit. Day 11 is this drastic drop-off. For whatever reason, day 11 is when people start to say in these surveys that they start to get homesick. They want to get back to their normal routines. They want to sleep in their own bed. They want to see their little fur babies because they miss them so much. They get back. They, they want to get back home. About 11 days is, is, is the given. That's, that is, so eight days. Eight is the ideal length for vacation. Stretch it to 10. You might be okay. The disciples spent how many days having this mountaintop experience? One day. One day. It says the next day they came down from the mountain after experiencing the transfiguration of Jesus. I think this is a reminder to us that in following Christ, We visit the mountaintop. We do not live there. We visit the mountain. But that's not where we reside in the life of following after Jesus. They had an incredible experience, but they were not intended to stay. There's a famous painting called The Transfiguration by Raphael, my favorite Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Actually, there's a hotly contested debate in our family about Ninja Turtles in my childhood. I don't have time to unpack it all for you. But anyway, this painting is really, really famous. It's the last one he ever did. It's from about the 1500s. Um, Some people say he painted himself to death trying to get this accomplished before he passed away. It's an incredible work of art. It's very, very, very famous. And what it does is it takes last week's scene and this week's scene and puts them together in one picture. On the top, you see the transfiguration of Jesus. He has changed. He has you know, enlightened. His disciples are, are incredibly astounded at their experience. But in the bottom half, you see the scene we read about today. You see this troubled boy and his father, and you see them surrounded by not just crowds, but by disciples who are unable to bring the healing that this boy needs. I think this painting is a great representation of the idea we are not meant to live on the mountain. There is always something to go back down to. There's always mission and ministry that we are called to. We are not meant to live on the mountain. And it's funny, the timing of these two sermons, because last week I talked to you about how on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter wanted to draw it out forever, make it last forever. He's like, listen, we'll build shelters. It'll be fine. We'll all just stay here. And I mentioned the Asbury awakening, a revival, and how I wonder if that's what it was like there. They're just like, let's draw it out. Let's stay here. Let's not let this end. Well, maybe you guys have been following it, and you know they decided to end it or essentially change it. They transitioned it off campus. They, they're doing it a little bit differently now. Part of it is because the little town of Wilmore, Kentucky is a town of, I think, like five or 6,000 people. Over the weekend, they had like 30,000 people who came into their little small town. The students are ready to get back to class. But then I read this quote from Alexandra Presta. She's the 
Uh, She works with the student publication there at Asbury, and this is what she said about the change. We don't want people to remember us. We don't want people to remember Asbury. We just want people to remember Jesus. And now we're in the transition of trying to obey the Bible and being commissioned to go out. And I think that's what's happening in this story we're reading today. They had this incredible experience, but now you don't live on the mountain. You go out to where you are called, and they are called back down the mountain. And Jesus and these three disciples are immediately approached by a father and his son. And we see that this son is absolutely suffering. He's being tormented by a demon. And so this father, in desperation, has come to Jesus and to his disciples. Did you notice when we read the text how many words and phrases suggest the the violence that's happening to this boy? Words like seizes, suddenly screams, throws, convulsions, foaming at the mouth, scarcely leaving him, and then towards the end, destroying him. Now, some have read this story and gone, you know, that actually sounds a little bit like epilepsy, that, that disorder when you have convulsions and foaming at the mouth. And it's true that in even the ancient Greek texts, there were medical texts that talked about uh, disorders of convulsions and people foaming at the mouth and how to treat them. But it's also true that Jesus healed demon-possessed people and those with seizures. I think that actually both things are happening here. I think that this boy is suffering on so many different levels. Jesus clearly believes he's dealing with an impure spirit, with a demon. I tend to trust Jesus' assessment of these situations, not to mention the fact, if you notice while we read it, when did that boy become convulsed? It's when he started to approach Jesus. If you read the Gospels, especially Luke, it's when Jesus comes near that those impure spirits react pretty violently. And so the father brings the son in desperation. I don't think it's a coincidence that this story is contained here in Luke chapter 9. Because if you've been with us, you know that it's very, very recently that Jesus has been declared at the Mount of Transfiguration as what? The Son of God, the only Son. And now back down the mountain, Jesus is confronted by an only Son. The Father said, this is my only child, my only Son. This is an only Son who is suffering. This is an only son who is doing battle with the spiritual forces of darkness. I think this is just a little prelude to what Jesus is going to experience at the cross. He's going to suffer. He's going to do battle with the spiritual forces of darkness, but he will have a loving father at his side the entire time. Jesus has to approach the situation because the nine disciples who did not make the trip up the mountain have been approached about a healing and, well, they have failed. They have not been able to bring relief and healing that this boy needs. And we might ask ourselves, why is that? Well, we don't know with any certainty. In my reading this week, some speculated that they had stopped relying on the power of God and are trying to do these sort of things in their own power. Others speculated that they have neglected the prayer that fueled their ministry. And some of the other accounts of the story, Jesus says something to the effect of, this, only, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting, maybe suggesting that they had neglected 
the prayer fuel for their ministry. Some people just think they kind of got lazy when Jesus wasn't around. So we don't know. But what we do know is that it's not like they don't have experience or practice. If you just flip back to the beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus had sent them out to do this exact kind of ministry. And they came back and reported to him all the incredible things that had happened. This is not a foreign idea to them to be approached with a situation like this. And yet, they failed to bring that boy healing. And Jesus, in response, has some kind of strong language for them in the midst of their failure. We read that he says, Oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation. And when he says generation, some people think he's talking to just the wider audience that is there. I tend to think he's more focused on the disciples because they're the ones that are sort of in the center of the story at this point. But he calls them unbelieving and perverse. Those are strong words. So I decided to look into them, to dig a little deeper. And the, the Greek word for that unbelieving is just apistis. It's the word faith with the negative article at the beginning, unfaith or lack of faith, unbelieving. It's pretty straightforward in matter, as a matter of fact. It's this idea that they had a lack of faithful trust in the power of God. Here's what I find really interesting, though, is in the parallel account in Mark chapter 9, we see the same story, and we see the Father use that word to describe himself. If you read the story in Mark, Jesus says, do you believe that I can heal your son? And his response is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That unbelief, that's apistis, it's the same word. He has faith but he's still struggling to grow in that faith. Help my unbelief. So Jesus is saying to all these disciples, boy, you have a level of unbelief that we still need to work on. But then there's the word for perverse. This one I find more interesting, and I want to talk about it because I think we we read the word perverse and we automatically attach like some sort of sexual connotation to it, to be perverted. But that's not actually what's happening here at the original language level. It's the word diastropho, and it actually can be literally translated as thoroughly turned. You thoroughly turned generation. Now, you can be thoroughly turned could be a positive thing. If you are trying to screw something into the wall and you thoroughly turn it, that's a good thing. But here it's obviously negative. So to be thoroughly turned in this way, words we could use are distorted or twisted. You distorted, twisted generation. That reminded me of the funhouse mirrors that they used to have at like circuses and fairs. I have not seen one in a really long time. Maybe you guys still know where you can find them. I think the last time I saw one was at a, a Ripley's Believe It or Not type museum. Um, I have not wandered through a fair or a circus. Not a circus. A, uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. I haven't seen a funhouse mirror in a really, really long time, right? But if you've ever stood in front of one, you know that you stand there and the form that you have becomes all twisted and contorted and distorted, and put out of place. And I think that's what's being communicated here from Jesus to his disciples and maybe the wider audience is that they are still not properly formed. 
they still need to be untwisted and reformed. They need to grow in their formation of Christ-likeness in order that God might use them even more deeply in his world. And so he says to them, you unbelieving, perverse, distorted generation, then he says, bring the boy to me. Because his disciples have failed. But as we sang today, he won't. He won't. He won't. He won't fail. So he steps forward and says, bring the boy to me. And the description that we see when Jesus heals this boy, it is so simple and succinct. We just are told he rebuked the evil spirit, he restored the boy, and he returned him to his father. He rebuked the spirit, restored the boy, returned him to his father. And make sure you make note, in the middle of one of these demonic attacks where he's convulsing on the ground. This is not when the boy is like, okay, like Jesus is trying to address it while everything is at its worst. And he simply rebukes the evil spirit. I read this week that in this ancient culture, exorcists normally had kind of go-to remedies for driving out demons in the ancient world. Sometimes they would have these lengthy incantations where they would call upon higher spirits or higher powers in order to intervene in the exorcism. Occasionally, they would use smelly roots or pain compliance techniques. Now, I share with you guys, sometimes I go on these really crazy rabbit trails. This week, I read that they sometimes use smelly roots for exorcism, and I thought, I need to know more about this. What is happening? They use smelly roots in order to perform exorcism, and guys, I I went so many places. I found out so many things. By the way, in ancient Sumerian culture, if they believed that you had some sort of uh, demonic oppression of the brain, they would rub your head with butter and milk as a solution. And I saw that and I'm like, oh, I think I've seen herbal shampoos that are very similar. It's all buttery and milky and making everything better. So according to uh, contemporary of Jesus, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he says, yes, there was a particular root called the barus root that was believed to be effective in driving out demons. But among those who utilized it, they would tell you it's really, really hard to get. First of all, you cannot touch that bare root directly with your own hand or you will die on the spot, is what they believe, this barus root. They, and it only grew in one certain place. You had to go there. You had to like go at night, and it was just this really complicated thing. It, in order to harvest it, there were really only two methods recommended for trying to harvest this barus root because of its complications. One of them involves bodily fluids. I am not going to tell you about that one today. You're welcome. If you want to know more, find out yourself. The internet is a wide place. I'm sure you'll find it. The other potential way to to harvest this barus root is you would dig a trench all the way around the root where it had been exposed. Then you would tie a rope to the root itself. Then you would tie the other end of the rope to a dog. And then you would call the dog so the dog would run after chasing you and rather easily pull the root up out of the ground. The thing is, you want to use your neighbor's dog for this because the dog immediately dies upon extracting the root from the ground. But once you've got it, oh, the power. The power of the barus root. Jesus needed no smelly root. 
Jesus needed no lengthy incantation. Jesus does not call upon any higher power. He speaks, and that boy is set free. Simple. And don't miss this part. And he gave him back to his father. I got so stuck on this phrase this week. He gave him back to his father. Because I believe it's true in two ways. I think that once the healing was complete, he gave him back to his father. But I think in a very much deeper way, he gave him back to his father. Because think about this. We read in the text, the father says, this spirit scarcely ever leaves him alone. I think that this father felt he had lost his son in some way a long time ago. Even though this boy is still physically present with him, I think that he felt like in a lot of ways he lost his son a while ago, and now he gets him back. And this is something that just God put on my heart really, really tenderly, and I thought it was just for me, but then I saw two things that I realized I need to share this because maybe there's somebody else that needs to hear it. Because we live in a much different world, but we live in a world where we still have diseases and afflictions that can take our loved ones from us, even when they're still with us. And there are a lot of different ways that this happens. I know it's affected me and my family. I know it's affected other people. Sometimes it's with issues of dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that, but it's not limited to that. Sometimes, though, we feel like some people are being taken from us even though they're still with us. We actually get a picture of this in a movie that's like 20 years old at this point, my wife maybe watched The Notebook. Ugh. I, I did not enjoy it, right? She, she did. I did not enjoy it. But I will say this. There, if you've seen it, there's this picture. And if you haven't seen it, too bad. It's 20 years old. I don't feel bad for you. Near the end, there's this moment where you get the sensation of what it means to get somebody back, to get them back. It's this beautiful picture. And I think it relates to what's happening in this story with Jesus healing this boy and his father and returning him, giving him back to his father. And the one thing that landed on me that I want to share with you is that one of the greatest joys of eternity is that all things will be restored. And I don't think that anything is impossible here in this life, in this world, but I do believe Jesus will not fail. He will not fail. And he will restore and make everything new. And it isn't just this story. Just flip back through what we've been reading in Luke and see how many times Jesus physically heals somebody and it goes right along with restoring a relationship. It wasn't that long ago we looked at the woman with the bleeding issue. And it wasn't just about physically healing her. She was then restored to her community, to her family, people she was alienated from. A little while before that, Jesus stops a funeral procession because there is a mother who's lost her only child and we read that Jesus brings him back to life, and then what? Gives the boy back to his mother. It seems to me Jesus is just as keen about restoring relationships as he is about restoring our health. And when this happened, in this particular story, we read the phrase, they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This work of driving out this demonic presence is credited as the power of God working through Jesus 
people are finally starting to get it. People are finally connecting what's happening and what they're experiencing with, this is the power of God at work among us. Well, not all people and not all the time, because a couple chapters from now, Jesus will do some more miraculous healing, and the Pharisees look at him and go, well, he must be Beelzebub. He must be the devil. Only the devil can drive out the devil. So not everybody's getting it all the time, but finally some people are starting to connect these incredible experiences with the, the power of God as at work among us. If you read the story of Jesus feeding how many thousands of people, they didn't even come up and be like, oh man, the power of God. We don't see it, but now we're starting to see people recognize it. Guys, it's one thing to experience the great things God has done. It's entirely different to give him the glory for the great things he has done. We can experience the greatness of God and miss out on the greatness of God among us. We can experience the incredible things that God is doing. But if we're not attentive, we will not be prepared to give him the glory for the things he has done. And that's been my prayer as I've read the story this week, because I, listen, I connect with the disciples. I fail all the time. I am still very much growing in my faith and my belief. I am very much still being formed into the image of Jesus. But now, after this story, I'm confident that I might fail. Jesus will not fail. That, that God still wants to do amazing things despite my failure, maybe as a direct response to my failure, God is not withheld from doing amazing things. So a few things to pray through and think about, reflect on as we finish our time together, responding to the word as we've read it. The first one, how often are you spending time with Jesus on the mountaintop, and then are you allowing those times to propel you into ministry and mission. We are not meant to live on the mountain. Second, if you've been feeling like a failure lately, ask God to help your unbelief and to continue to form you into the image of Christ, things that he is happy to do. Third, just give thanks for the promise that Jesus will not fail. That either in this world or the glory of the next one, he will make all things new. And then lastly, what is one amazing thing you want to see God do in your life, in our church, in our city, in this nation, in this world? Let's together invite the Holy Spirit to make the greatness of God known among us. Dream about the great things that God might do among us, not for our benefit but that so people would witness them and say to themselves, the greatness of God is among us. I'm going to flip through those one more time. My hope and prayer is that something grabs at your heart and your mind as we have this time of silence and reflection, and we'll close that with a word of prayer in just a moment.